this morning. Last uh, Sunday, we began a, a new series of sermons in the book of Genesis, and uh, we'll be here uh, hopefully up until the fall. We entitled this series Beginnings because it starts with In the Beginning, and that's about the extent of my creativity. No, it's a book of beginnings, and these uh, beginnings are uh, what so much of the rest of the Bible has their roots back down in, and many of the keys to flourishing in life are in their early forms in this very first book of the Bible. We thought together about the first 25 verses And if I could summarize that just in case you missed it, we said that the creation story teaches in the beginning, God created the heavens, the earth, and all that is within them. Today, we're going to slow down and only look at six verses, yet the breadth of the truth that we're going to see is enormous. Now, before I read the passage and we get thinking about it together, I I do want to tell you, as I've been praying for you and our time together this morning, that I think a a call for sensitivity is in in order. Um, We will be talking this morning about some of the most intimate, personal, sensitive issues in life. And furthermore, the context in which we're in makes them all the more so. With a family as diverse as this one, this church family, and with guests here every Sunday, Christians and non-Christians alike, it's important that we show love and charity and patience and kindness one to another. We hail from a wide variety of backgrounds, cultures, countries, religions, and denominations. And our experiences thus far in life related to our topics very wildly from the kind of family we're from, for how we feel about what kind of gender we are, and whether or not we have children and how we feel about that. And so I'd encourage you this morning to be be praying for yourself, for others, and just know how much I love you. My intent this morning is to say, Uh, what God says, not more, but not less either. And if there's anything in here that brussels up against your soul, then go first to the Lord about it. He's the ultimate one that interacts with us about his word through his spirit. But then reach out and talk to others. Think through these truths in the community of faith. And I would certainly, of course, be happy to sit and listen and pray with you. So with that in mind, we'll be in Genesis 1.26. Look with me there, would you? Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. 
And he said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, and have a dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, behold, this is his provision for what he's told them to do. Behold, I've given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the ground and over every tree with seed and its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens and to over everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he'd made and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning, the sixth day. Friends, these are among the most important words that have ever been written. During the first six and a half days of creation, God made everything except people. But here in this last half of the sixth day, here is the pinnacle of his creative plan. Here is the very best thing God made. God made people in his image. And we want to think closely and carefully about this this morning. So we're slowing down to try to get in and really explore the contours of that truth. I thought a way we could do it is to construct a sentence together slowly over time, working through the passage, and take what it says in the order it says it and just try to explain it. Notice first that the passage tells us that God created people. Friend, who made you, you ask? Well, God did. Yes, there were others involved in that process, but God worked through them to create you. And you've never locked eyes with someone who is not the special creation of God. Five times the word created is used in the creation story, Genesis 1, 1 through 2, 3. That's a long passage, and in those five times, three of them occur in verse 27 alone. This is the first poem in the Bible, and anytime there's a a narrative passage moving through and then it's sort of interrupted or the genre changes, It's telling us this is particularly significant. Slow down. Look closely. It's worth reading again. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Every line in that poem emphasizes things about us in a whole bunch of various ways, that we are the unique, special, intentional design of God. This is sort of the Scripture's way of saying something to us in all caps, lots of exclamation points, and even an emoji or two. God made people. Friend, you exist by the hand of God. You are not here by chance. 
You are, are not the object of a slow-moving, evolving process of humanoid to human. You are not an accident. You are the special creation of your creator. You're the crown jewel, the pinnacle of what he's made. Now, when the topic of creation arises, many of our minds go to to science, understandably, naturally, if I could. We can't fully explore all the issues connected to that, but I do think a few comments are in order. Uh, First, I'm a Christian, and I believe in science. The two things are not foes. They go together. And frankly, I want to use a very personal illustration to tell you the degree to which I'm happy that science exists. Uh, Some of you know I have a very significant autoimmune disease that um, if not for the provisions that modern science has provided me through medicine, I would not be here, standing today, able to preach a sermon. And it's possible I may not even be alive. Because as my immune system ramps up, then it attacks my body and most of my organs I have had problems with. I am thankful for science. My family is thankful for science. Science is good. God is working through it to extend my life. I don't know how long, but he's extending it, and I'm trying to use it well. The miracle of modern medicine is absolutely incredible. God and science don't have beef In the final analysis, humanity will all come to see there is no contradiction between the study of what God has made and God. Some of the most famous scientists, in fact, historically, have been Christians who understood themselves as they worked the scientific process to be looking deeper and deeper and deeper into what God himself has already done. Rightly ordered, science helps us understand what God has made. The problem isn't science. Where we run into difficulty is if we start the scientific process with the assumption that all there is is a materialistic, anti-supernatural world. That can't be proven. If we start there, then science is starting on the wrong foot. I think that's the only issue. If you want to learn more about this perspective, I'd encourage you to make a note to look up and read something written by Dr. John Lennox. He's an excellent author. John is a professor of mathematics and philosophy of science at Oxford. I can hardly say that, let alone understand it. Brilliant man. 
He's written many, many books to try to equip us on these exact issues. Let me tell you some of the titles. Seven Days That Divide the World, The Bible According to Genesis and Science. Excellent book. Another one he wrote, Cosmic Chemistry, Do God and Science Mix? Another one, Can Science Explain Everything? His longest treatment of this is called God's Undertaker, Has Science Buried God? Any of those would make great reads if you want to think more deeply about the relationship between science, creation, and God. The Bible rightly interpreted and the created world rightly discerned by scientists are friends, not foes. All right, so our first point this morning is that God created people. Now let's stretch that sentence longer to include a little more of what is said here. If you let your eyes glance back over the start of verse 26, it says, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And then jump down to verse 27. So God created man in his image. In the image of God, he created him. God really wanted us to know that, apparently, because he said it again and again and again. Not only did God create people, God created people in his image. This is one of the most practical and astonishing things in all of Scripture. Later today, I encourage you to take time to read Genesis 1-1 all the way through the end of chapter 2. Read it slowly and carefully. And what you'll find is that the only thing God made in his image is humanity. We are unique in the created world. And so, yes, I'd encourage you, do take the drive up and look at the Grand Canyon. It is majestic. And if you're a little insane, you can even go down in it and then have to figure out how to get out. That's an incredible journey. The next time you're on a vacation in, in the mountains, be amazed at the size of a moose. That thing could gnaw you to pieces if it wanted to. They're huge. Did you see the sunset last night? It was exquisite. Have you been to California and seen the sequoia trees? They are amazing. They provoke worship. But friends, what you've seen that God has made that ought to cause the most wonder is you've seen people. People are the very best of God's creative activity. Yes, we're weird and different and strange. Yes, we all have particular particularities. But all of us are made in the likeness, the, made to represent God. It's incredible. 
of, of all the things God made, all of them are inferior compared to the creation of people. This means, of course, that everyone we ever meet deserves our admiration, our respect, because they made in the image of God. Now, what exactly, though, is that? What does it mean to be made in the image of God? Image means likeness, representation. Well, it can't mean your body. It's not that you look like God. God's a spirit. He doesn't have a body. So what then does it mean? Well, no shortage of ink has been spilled on that question over the millennia. There are thousands, maybe tens of thousands of articles and books wrestling with that question. Interestingly, Genesis doesn't seem to struggle with it, nor does it stop really to define it. It just states it as fact. God created and God created in His image. Theologians have helped us to understand by looking across the whole Bible that it's probably best to think of the image of God as referring to both who we are and what we do. Meaning, there's something, there's some truths about our very nature, inescapable things, deep down in what we are, in who we are, in our nature, that's part of the image of God. And, as we'll see this morning, there are certain truths about things we're supposed to spend our lives doing that then represent in a miniature way something of who God is. You see, people are intelligent, rational, relational. We're moral beings, hardwired worshipers. We will mirror, we will image something or someone. Everyone does. It's part of what it means to be in the image of God. It's who we are. And we are commanded toward actions that bear resemblance of some of God's actions. We take out of what God has made, and we create and build and help society flourish. That's what we do. All of that is encapsulated in this phrase, the image of God, if we look across the whole Bible. Throughout history, it's been common that as uh, kings or emperors, domain grew, then one of the things they would do often is put a statue of themselves or themselves in a city that they're not particularly in. What's the point of that? Well, the point is the statue represents the rule, the reign of that king. And if you went into most ancient places of worship outside of Judaism, then you would find statues of gods. You see, the statue, the image represents the presence of and the working through of those gods and statues. The statues represent the king. Friend, you represent God. 
who we are and what we do paint a picture of who God is. This is why all humans are given unique respect and value over everything else God's made. It's why you are worth so much. C.S. Lewis preached a, what became a very famous sermon called The Weight of Glory, and he says this in that sermon. It is with awe and circumspection proper to them, people, that we should conduct all our dealings with one another, all friendships, all loves, all play, all politics. There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilizations, these are mortal. And their life is to ours as the life of a gnat. But it is immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, and unfortunately, snub and exploit. He's right. That's a good summary of the first three chapters of the Bible. Church, imagine what our experience as a community of faith, and perhaps even more, imagine what the people you interact with in everyday life. Imagine how they would be lifted up if we treat all people with dignity, value, and kindness. Because they're made in the image of God. Now some may wonder, well, is this still true? Meaning, Genesis 1 and 2, everything's great. Genesis 3, a disastrous event occurs that has forever impacted everything. People disobeyed God. Creation fell. And in so doing, people were radically changed. Well, while the horrific events of Genesis 3 do have disastrous consequences, those consequences did not eradicate being made in the image of God. We know that because Genesis 5, Genesis 9, James 3 all tell us that after the fall, people remain made in the image of God. And yet, that image is marred. A, a broken mirror presents a distorted likeness, but it is a likeness nonetheless. Now, there's great news in the New Testament, actually, about all of this, because the New Testament tells us that Jesus came as the exact imprint, that Jesus came in the very nature of God. And through his life, death, and resurrection, he became the great image restorer. Because you see, all who put their faith and trust in him will find God making all things new within them. And astonishingly, we are Christian, you, Christian, are not being then remade in the image of Adam, 
but rather you're being remade in the image of the, the second Adam, the new Adam, Jesus, because he's creating a whole new humanity. We are being made in the very likeness of Christ. Amazing. This is the scandal of what the gospel's doing. So God created people in his image. But look once more at verse 27. There's another truth we need to squeeze from it and extend our sentence. It says, so God created man in his image. Yeah, we said that. In the image of God, he created him. We've said that. Male and female, he created them. Friends, that last line technically isn't necessary. It would have been possible for us to know that God made men and women, male and female, with just the first two lines, because that first reference to man is to mankind. And yet God labored to show us that he made us male and female. Lord willing, in two weeks, when we reach the middle of chapter two, we'll think more specifically together about this as we think about Adam and Eve. But in the meantime, a couple comments as we prepare over the next several weeks to process sex and gender together. Friends, God saw fit to go out of his way to communicate that our sexuality is a fundamental aspect of who we are. That's part of his created design. Have you ever heard somebody say, I have, I have a body? Have you ever said that? I have a body. It seems so natural to say that, doesn't it? But that's not quite right. You don't have a body. You are a body. You are a body. Now, before you freak out, you're not only a body. There is a material part of you and there is an immaterial part of you. You have a soul, you have a spirit. It would be better for us to say, I am my body, but I'm not only my body. Because you see, except for the intermediate state, this, when one dies, before the return of Christ, then you don't have a body. And so there's this intermediate state between the first coming and the second coming. And that's very weird to think about. But in the span of eternity, that, that's, that's that much. After that, you will be embodied forever. Christian, you will be embodied in a reformed, remade, rebuilt body that will not have any of the struggles that your body has today. And most importantly, you'll never sin again in that body. 
I'm looking forward to that. How about you? In the wisdom of God, this embodiment includes being male and female. And despite what we hear so commonly today, it's not that one's sex is assigned at birth. It's that one's sex is identified at birth. Unless you cheat and use an ultrasound, then you can figure out earlier. But at the moment of conception, God makes every cell in a body male or female. And this is part of what God calls very good. Not just good, very good. God, not the doctors and nurses delivering the baby, not the parents, not society, and not the individual. God determines our sex. Now, I recognize, and you recognize, that in 2024 in Tempe, Arizona, this is enough. Saying these things out loud are enough to get you canceled. And we Christians need to show compassion and intentionally go out of our way to not be unnecessarily abrasive in a society where there is much struggle and disagreement today over these issues. Some of us who call Church on Mill home struggle with some of these issues. Yet we need not fear living and speaking biblically. In the long run, that's not only best for us, it's best for every place and every context we're in. It's best that people see how God made them. What God says is very good is very good. God created people in his image, male and female. Now, there's one more big truth I want to show you in the passage. And uh, I believe this is a spot where many of us can lean in and think through it more closely, carefully, and gain some traction in our walks with God. I also believe it's the spot that will hit the most tender and the most difficult for some. And so let's talk about it, and you talk with God about it, but if you struggle with it, don't let that be the extent of all the talking you do. Talk with fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. Pray together. Chat it up in gospel communities with people you're discipling or being discipled by. With anyone who you know and love and trust who can help you grow and you them. The question we need to ask is, at this point, is what was God's purpose in creating humanity in his image, male and female? Why did he do that? What was his design? We want to end this morning thinking through that together. A different way to say it is because we're image bearers, 
What are we supposed to do with the lives we've been given? This passage tells us the answer. It gives us not every contour of every aspect of it in particularities, but it gives us down at the nub, the root of it. Much of it is there in verse 28. But here's the way I would try to summarize it. God created people in His image, male and female. Why? To relate to Him, to reproduce, and to rule. Friends, in the brilliant design of God, God has given us glorious, we might even say, royal responsibilities in which he is the king over his cosmos and we represent him by doing things like what he has done. So let's think for a few moments about each one of those clauses. I said that God made us this way to relate to him. That's not in verse 28 directly. This blessing and responsibility isn't in the five commands listed in verse 28, but I think nonetheless it's in the passage subtly. Notice that God said, let us make man in our image. Who's he talking to? This is the only spot in the created order, in the plan, when we have a divine meeting, a discussion. This is an early hint that God is triune, that God exists in community, that God, for all time, has been, which we know later in the Bible, that God is Father, Son, and Spirit. One God, yet three distinct persons who exist in a divine, perfect community. And His image bearers are also created for community, for relationship. First and foremost, with God. Now, we'll see this very clearly in chapter 2 as we learn about Adam and Eve and Adam and Eve visiting with God as He walked with them. But we do see it here, too, because if you were to start Genesis 1 and read all the way through Genesis 2-3, one thing you'd notice is everything God made, He spoke about until He got to people. Then he spoke to them. God didn't say to the plants, hey, plant, do this. The plant can't understand or talk back or relate. But we can. We are made to know God. That is the greatest adventure and task and joy in life. The next aspect of why God created us is that we are to reproduce. 
I'm saying that as a summary of several things in verse 28. God blessed them. God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth. This means, church, that ordinarily, God expects married couples of childbearing age to at some point have children. These children then are also made in the image of God. And it is the design and plan of God that these littles would then grow up and help fill the earth and then make more littles. This is how the glory, the image of God, gets multiplied and repeated around the world. Every one of us is here, not by our doing, right? These children are a gift, not an inconvenience. One biblical scholar I read this week said, if humans are to imitate God, then creating life is a basic part of that task. For believers, childbirth is an act of worship, a sharing in the work of God, the one who created life. He's exactly right. Children are to be a part of most marriages. Yet there will be exceptions, often quite painful ones. In a fallen world, some couples struggle terribly with infertility and using everything they can to help in a modern age. Some couples never, ever can get pregnant. Others must heartbreakingly recognize that they are providentially hindered from doing so. There are cases in which a pregnancy would be too big a risk on a mother's life, on a woman's life, because that might put her in serious or even grave danger in pregnancy and in childbirth. Still others of us are not married during childbearing years. Beloved, if any of those kinds of situations are your own story, God knows. God didn't mess up with you. God cares, and you are in no way wrong for not having children. And you are in no way less of an image bearer, a sort of demoted man or woman that isn't true in any way, shape, or form. There are additional ways in which you can, if that's your situation, experience helping with this whole realm of life. You can be a great aunt. You can be a tremendous uncle to all kinds of people in the body of Christ. Furthermore, 1 Corinthians 7, just make a note of that if you've never read it, 1 Corinthians 7 tells us that God in his wisdom calls some people 
for some portion of their lives or for their entire lives to live their life single, not married, and therefore not bearing children. Jesus himself was that. Certainly, we would not want to say Jesus was less manly because of it, right? Our church is almost 40% single adults. Do you have any idea how unusual that is? What binds us together is not we are families with 3.5 kids and we all look alike and we're in the exact same station in life. What binds us together is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And therefore, we will be in all kinds of different situations. That's why it's so important we love each other well. God's people in every generation until the last few have understood the normal design and pattern for humanity is that married people of childbearing age have children. This command in Genesis 1 is not then undone by the fall in Genesis 3. How do we know that? Well, it's repeated to Noah and his sons in Genesis chapter 9, revealing that this is ongoing. And so actually our experience of it is not so much the experience of Adam and Eve, but rather the experience of Noah because it's after the fall, and therefore it's filled with difficulties, and there are exceptions. We experience a Noah-like world, not a Garden of Eden-like world. Nothing in the Bible cancels out these commands. And yet, I do want to point out that there is a parallel matter related to this. And if you Remember back to Tad's prayer, he prayed about it. Not only do humans, this is Genesis 1 and 2 are spoken to everyone, but not only do all people have those directives, those who are saved and in the family of faith, they have an additional directive. You see, we can be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth by sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ, by inviting people to trust Him. And in that way, we are spiritually reproducing, making disciples for the glory of God. And friend, if you're in Christ, whatever you're able to do with the, this first kind of reproduction, you're, you're definitely able to do this kind. Isn't that amazing? This is the kindness of God. If any of this has struck you particularly painfully, or if you are angry with me, please come talk with me. I'd love the joy of sitting and listening and praying. There are aspects of this that in my own life have been very, very difficult 
to submit to. But as one who used to fight against some of these things and now tries to live instead on my knees with open hands, my experience has been submitting to God is the very best thing and leads to a more joyful life than trying to come up with my own plan. Unless one is providentially hindered or given the gift of singleness, then God's design is that we marry and have babies. And that's very good. Now, there's one last thing the passage tells us. It tells us that we're also to rule. You'll see that in the the latter part of verse 28, to fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion. That's where I'm getting the word rule. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, over every living thing that moves on the earth. At the apex of creation, God created image bearers who serve as his royal representatives as they not only relate to him and reproduce, but also have a authority under God, but over his creation to do and give ourselves to whatever would subdue and build the world's resources toward human flourishing. We are to use the resources from what God has made for the good of others. In short, we're we're to be hard workers. God created in six, and then he rested. That's a pattern we should expect would be common, that the majority of our lives we would spend doing good things in his strength. That doesn't only, that not only includes vocation, but it includes all kinds of other things too, that build up what God has made and promote human flourishing. We'll talk more about that next week as we consider the significance of rest. I am convinced in 2024, the vast majority of people have no idea what rest is. So come back next week and you can even sleep in that sermon if you'd like. In the meantime, brothers and sisters, let's let our minds, our hearts, our affections, our desires, our fears, our worries, our anxieties be given to God as we think about these very difficult but important things. In His strength, relative to all our different situations in life, May we give ourselves to these endeavors for Him. I mentioned that um, in the New Testament we learn more about the image of God and some amazing things happen in Jesus. Christian, you are being, you're in the process of being transformed into Christ-likeness. One of the ways God has given us to remember that is the Lord's Supper, in which as we 
take the bread and the cup, we're remembering what Christ did in order that we could have what we now have. And so we felt like that'd be the best way to end today. If you're gonna help with passing out the elements, please come. Friend, if you are